0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit the vineoc.com. In a course that I am currently teaching right now at Fuller Seminary, we are looking just this week at the Christian practice of lament, which is really quite appropriate in this season of Lent. There are a number of psalms that are written for corporate lament and offer language for protesting to God against suffering. And and there's also an entire Old Testament book called Lamentations, and that's devoted to the subject of lament. And yet, as most of my students attest, Christians and the churches they attend are not usually skilled at the practice of lament. We don't generally sing songs that would be characterized as lament and and except for funeral services, we don't usually lament together as a corporate act. Now, some would say it's because of a kind of extreme and rigid view of, of what's called God's sovereignty, which ends up being translated as a kind of fatalism that says God is gonna do whatever God is going to do. And so lamenting is really just pointless. Of course, based on our, that argument, so is prayer. Now, others would suggest that our hesitance to lament comes out of fear that we are somehow offending God by protesting him about what's come into our life, things that we think are, are painful things. And now others might just say that lament's just kind of a downer, and we shouldn't have to feel sad when we come to church. Well, our text this morning from Genesis 18 shows Abraham to be only slightly hesitant to protest to God. He's respectful, but he's also persistent. And he's not even really bargaining. Really, he's haggling as though God and he are in an ancient marketplace arguing over the price of eggplant. Now, the the setting for the story is quite interesting. Uh, God has determined that Sodom is a thoroughly corrupt city and he's going to wipe it off the planet. God says that an outcry has come to him that Sodom is a sinful place, but he doesn't identify the source of the outcry. So we can just speculate. Were, Were there people within the city of Sodom crying out to God? Well, if that's the case, then that would certainly validate Abraham's protest? Or were the people groups at Sodom's borders perhaps the source of the outcry? Sort of like people calling the police when a neighbor has a loud party late into the night. Well, either way, God has taken notice and appears to Abraham with his messengers, or perhaps we would call them his emissaries. Now, the picture we are given is one in which God does not remain distant. From the problems on earth, but instead he enters directly into the dark dramas of human life in order to get a, a kind of ground-level perspective, even a human perspective on things. The two messengers do indeed end up traveling right into Sodom and soon will discover that the city is truly a mess. But before that happens, God sets the stage with Abraham. He says that He will not hide his plan from Abraham because he recognizes that Abraham and his descendants are the means by which all nations will be blessed. A call that that came to Abraham back in, in Genesis chapter 12. So Abraham, the patriarch of the people who are to bless all nations, is told that disaster, not blessing, is about to descend upon Sodom. The messengers then depart for Sodom, but but the Lord's presence remains as, as though he is saying to Abraham, so Abraham, do you wanna talk about anything? And then Abraham starts haggling. Well, we don't know if Abraham decided to argue because he felt that such destruction would be a, a violation of God's very calling to him or Perhaps because Abraham's nephew Lot and his household were living in Sodom at the time. Well, regardless, the negotiations still begin. And Abraham pushes against God's plan by appealing to God's nature. Far be it from you, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing Uh, in reference to the possibility of God destroying the righteous along with the unrighteous. Uh, Abraham also appeals to God's own sense of justice as though God needed to be reminded of such things. And God goes along with it all. And he gives in to each possibility of 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, and finally 10 righteous people for whom God would spare the city. But it isn't just that God would spare the city for the sake of just a few righteous people. God says that for their sake, he will forgive the city. The Hebrew word that we typically translate as forgive is a very commonly used word that means to carry. For the sake of a few righteous, God will not simply ignore the sin of Sodom. He will carry it, he will shoulder it, on behalf of the people of that city, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we should pause at this moment and consider what this means for a fellowship of believers, of followers of Jesus, of Christians to be present and faithful in the midst of a community, in the midst of a city. Our presence is more than just a nice, quiet, religious thing. It's the presence of the righteous among the unrighteous, the faithful among the unfaithful, where God takes notice and carries the sins of the city. We ought to think about that for a while, even hearing in our minds the very echo of Jesus' voice when he cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Well, uh, there are several really stunning things that are happening in this story about Abraham and Sodom. First, God appears to be putting Abraham to a kind of test where he forces him to put on the mantle of being a blessing to all nations, and then to be faced with the wholesale destruction of a lot of people. It's as though God is showing Abraham that to be a people of blessing is a very real thing and not some kind of abstract theological idea. And Abraham does well. When he sees the disaster coming, he stands in the gap for Sodom and he pleads their case to God. Second, Adam is faced with despair over this impending doom, one that could include his family members. And his protest to God reflects his concern over the lives of real human beings. And third, God is the one who sets the stage for Abraham's protest. It's as though God has invited Abraham to engage with him in a way that doesn't just accept a given outcome. There's a sense of intimacy in the exchange, not between equals, but as ones who have come to know each other in a very personal way. Abraham believes he knows something about God's character and he doesn't see wholesale destruction of the righteous along with the unrighteous as being consistent with that character. If this was a test of Abraham's faithfulness to his calling, then he passed the test. You know, there's another test coming soon for Abraham. In that test, traditionally called the Akedah or the binding of Isaac, Abraham isn't asked about his destiny as a blessing to the nations of the world. In this test, he is asked to sacrifice the child of promise who is the first evidence of that destiny. The descendants of Abraham, the the people of God start with the child Isaac. What happens to the promise of God when that child is destroyed? Now you probably know the story, it's found in Genesis chapter 22, just down the road a piece. God calls Abraham to take his son Isaac up to a mountain in an area called Moriah and sacrifice him, to kill him, and to do so as an offering to God. And so, in obedient response, Abraham sets out. But God supplies a ram at the last minute, sparing the life of Isaac, which appears to have been God's intention all along. Now, the, the, the two stories provide a very interesting contrast. In the first, Abraham argues with God over the fate of a lot of people he doesn't even know. In the second, God demands the death of Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, the child of promise. And Abraham doesn't utter a word. He just heads up the mountain with his son and a sharp knife. So what's going on here? Well, both of these are stories of despair. In the first, Abraham despairs over the people of Sodom. In the second, there is despair that the child of promise and the very promise itself is going to die. Isaac came about when Abraham was quite old. There's a a really good chance that there won't be any do-overs at this point. One Christian scholar has speculated that perhaps in the story of the binding of Isaac, Abraham passed the test of obedience, but that he failed the test of relationship. As in the story of Sodom, would God have welcomed Abraham's argument against what was demanded? Was God inviting Abraham into a time of protest that Abraham failed to accept? For Abraham did despair, override trust in God's faithfulness. In the story of Sodom, Abraham seems to have been insisting that the destruction of the city was in opposition to God's call to Abraham and his kin to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, including the people of Sodom. But in the second, perhaps Abraham despaired that he had somehow failed in his destiny and now the promise was being removed through Isaac's death. Now, now we can't really know for sure, but certainly, Despair was alive and well in both stories. What we see here is that God seems to be willing to accept the protests of his people, to hear their outcry, to test their relationship with him to the extent that he meets them at the mat like wrestlers in a competition. There's a familiar phrase that we Christians often use in prayer your will be done. Now, we we didn't make it up. It's given to us more than once in the Bible and and we say it each week when we recite the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, it's a plea that what God wills, what he desires and intends will come to pass in both heaven and earth. But then the prayer goes on to ask for daily provision, for forgiveness, for freedom from, from times of trial and deliverance from evil. Embracing God's will apparently doesn't mean that day-to-day things are a foregone conclusion and that such requests shouldn't be brought before God. Sometimes, I think people attach your will be done to a prayer as though to say, look God, you're going to do whatever you're going to do, so just take my requests with a grain of salt because they probably won't make any difference anyway, given your will. In that sense, it just seems like our prayers would bounce off of God's will, a will that we think is set in stone, and that may very well be a recipe for despair. Instead, the Bible gives us a lot of examples of how we are allowed to protest with God, even haggle with God when we feel that things are not right in the world in general or in our lives in particular. Listen, listen to these examples, these protests from the Psalms. So here's one from Psalm 44. Rouse yourself, why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Or here's one from Psalm 60. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry, now restore us. You have caused the land to quake. You have torn it open, Repair the cracks in it for it is tottering. And of course, this familiar and plaintive cry from Psalm 79, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? In scripture, the first response to despair is lament and lament as it is offered to us in the Psalms is an act of worship. Without giving voice to suffering, despair takes root and doesn't allow for hope. It is in the protest, it is in the wrestling, it is in the, the haggling with God that we sort through everything, including our own distorted thinking, and we face off with the God of promise. Now we see this in the Old Testament book of Lamentations when after hearing words of suffering and despair over the destruction of Jerusalem, hope is rekindled through memory. Hear these words from Lamentations chapter three. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Lately, I've been learning something about how in a time that invites lament, memory infused with gratitude can dismantle despair and rekindle hope. In times of despair, We can look back on the times when we experienced God's faithfulness to us when we were going through difficulties. We can look back at relationships that have been broken and and thank God for the times when love and friendship had been shared with those people. We can recall times of deep loss and remember God's healing touch in our lives. In reflecting on how we have experienced God's love and care in the past, we can look at our present circumstances, and even in the midst of lament, we can embrace hope. Abraham knew something about God, and his knowledge didn't just pop out of nowhere. Abraham had a history with God, even being known as the friend of God, and he had come to trust in God's character and faithfulness. In his protest against the the destruction of Sodom, Abraham's memory of God's faithful presence fueled his willingness to confront God and lament the possible destruction of the city. I've been amazed as I've been reflecting on this story of Abraham's conversation with God. It's not just that God seems perfectly comfortable with Abraham's protests, but also that God is willing to forgive the people of the city, to carry the sins of the city, if there are but a handful of faithful, righteous people living there. It's like a picture of the mission of the people of God, the mission of followers of Jesus to be present and faithful in a broken world where God is working to reconcile that world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In that sense, Abraham's laments and ours are what we might call missional outcries in that they demonstrate our solidarity with the world and our devotion to the God whose mission is to redeem it. Lament becomes God's gift to us, and we voice it not only for ourselves, but also on behalf of the world. right now, and really as in all times, there are plenty of reasons for despair in our world. We're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Millions in the United States are suffering under extreme weather conditions. There are reports of genocidal massacres in Ethiopia uh, and, and any number of other disasters. Add to that our personal difficulties that often cause us to despair within the quiet of our own homes. How do we let go of that despair for ourselves and for the sake of the world? Maybe one way that we let go of despair is to allow our memories, even in the midst of lament, to rekindle our hope in God's faithfulness. The stories in our scriptures Provide a history of faithful memories. The stories in our own life histories remind us that God has met us when things seemed desperate. To remember is to do more than to just call images to mind, it is to be remembered, that is, reconnected with the people of God's calling and to be free to remind God and ourselves of his past faithfulness to us. And so, along with the faithful people of God who have gone before us, we pray. Lord, great is your faithfulness. You are our portion. Therefore, we will hope in you. Amen. You know, even in a time such as this, in this season of Lent, in a time of crying out to God with our laments, even our protests, we, we are often confronted with ourselves. Lent, along with the time of repentance is a, and a time of humility, is also a time of self-reflection. And that's why at this point in our service, we, we come together in a time of, of truth-telling about ourselves, recognizing our own frailty, our own faults, our own sin, that which is individual, that which is shared together corporately. And so we come now to a time of confession. And as we say together, Lord, you call us to love as you love, care as you care, seek justice, mercy and truth in a world that has yet to feel the warmth of your embrace. But we fail to heed your call. We draw back from those in need, say nothing when we see injustice. Forgive us, you whose love is better than life, you whose grace extends to all. Forgive us and enable us to be the people we could be, that your name might be on the lips of all people. Amen.